listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. So I want to start this morning and, and ask you to turn to Numbers chapter 13. We're going to hit the Old Testament for a couple of weeks. Numbers, Numbers chapter 13. And as you do that, I have an important question to ask you. And, and, and it's simple. It goes like this. What does it mean to be committed? What does the word committed or commitment look like? Now, the word has various meanings. If you look it up in, in the English language, there are various definitions for it. And, 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 and it might get used in this kind of setting. That person committed a crime. Or at a burial service, you might hear the pastor say that the body has been committed to the ground. Another way that that gets, gets used, that word can also gets years, get used, and, and it happened a number of years ago when I was pastoring in Alberta. Uh, for Christmas, some staff members gave me a straitjacket. Why? I'm not sure, but I guess maybe they figured I needed to be committed, you know? And so there's different ways that we can use this word, but ultimately in the way we're going to look at it this morning is that word commitment or commit means loyalty. It means dedication. It means all in. And, and we are committed people. We are committed to all different kinds of things. There's certain causes, or we're committed to our jobs or to our families. We're committed to our churches, to our hobbies, to, to sports, to our Netflix, to various things we are committed and we are dedicated to. But let's face it, anyone would agree, and even your own heart, if you were to be honest, would say our commitments are oftentimes rather fleeting. And, and, and we see that today in culture, we see that all over the place, and we can even see it in our own lives. We care more about ourselves and about the hope and the promise of a fulfillment in our lives or a favorable outcome in our lives, and we'll be committed as long as the way looks good. But if it doesn't, so oftentimes our commitment levels can, can, can waver and even sometimes totally change and go in a different direction. So oftentimes it's on the level of as long as it's good for me. As long as, as it's going to work out in a positive way, I'll be fully committed. We hear this from politicians who talk about commitment and things that they commit themselves to doing, and yet once they get elected, it very rarely ends up happening. Or sports figures who are committed to their team that they're playing for in the city that they play for, but soon as more money or the, the possibility of being on a winning team comes along, they will jump ship rather quickly, LeBron James, to, in order to do that. That sort of a thing. And, and we see that time and time again. And yet, sadly, it just doesn't happen to politicians and to athletes. It can also happen to you and to me in our jobs, in our marriages, in our friendships, church, and even times in our relationship with God. That sometimes as we go along and it gets tough and it gets hard, we give up and we, we, we kind of stop. Either time out and with not always the necessarily the promise of continuing, or we just turn our back on God altogether, and we just go, and, and perhaps it means we still go to church, but we're just going through the spiritual motions. But the biblical concept and the idea of commitment is different, and what we're going to look at today, we're going to see lived out in the life of a very ordinary guy who just kind of all of a sudden appears here in the Old Testament, and, and we see just an incredible life that this guy ended up living over the years, not just at the start, he just wasn't committed from the start, but it was also, as we will see next week, Lord willing, that he was also committed and wholehearted to the very end, and so this week and next week, we're going to look at this Old Testament character. 
And it says about this guy by the name of Caleb, who we'll be looking at, it talks about him not once, not twice, not three times, but six times in three books of the Bible. It talks about him being wholehearted, about him being a wholehearted disciple. And so in other words, this guy was committed. And he was committed to God and he was committed to God's kingdom purposes for the long haul. Just not a starting burst out of the gates commitment, but one that carried on for years and years to come. And so he's kind of this obscure person, a warrior who suddenly appears on the scene in Numbers chapter 13. And here's a man who had a heart that was wholehearted, who was wholehearted in his commitment to God. And so we just want to kind of set the context for those of you who may not necessarily be familiar or just need to be brushed up on a little bit about how we get to Caleb here in in Numbers chapter 13. Prior to this, the children of Israel had been living in Egypt in slavery, and as a nation, they had been slaves there in Egypt for over 400 years. Moses, God's servant, led them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea in a miraculous way. And and even though the Egyptian army gave chase at the very end, the Red Sea closed in over the Egyptian army and, and swallowed them up into the sea. And they were free. They were free, finally free, and headed for the promised land. And God had been promising that. They had been clinging to that promise. And now they were people of this promise. They were heading to the promised land. And so the first 12 chapters of the book of Numbers are basically kind of an overview and and document their two-year journey through the wilderness, despite some complaining and some other things going on, as well as God's power showing up in some mighty ways, and, and to the outer outskirts of the promised land, the southern border of this land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This land, this promise that they had been holding on for, for hundreds of years was finally now going to be taking place. But as they're getting ready to head into the promised land, it was in their sights, and they were so excited, we come to chapter 13. And we see that they're going to send some spies into the land to spy it out. And so we're going to read some significant passages or portions here of Numbers 13 because God's word speaks and I trust it will speak as we um, even read it here this morning. So let's follow along. It talks about the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send spies, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran. According to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. So Moses takes and he chooses these leaders from, a, from each tribe, a leader from every tribe. And he, he, he takes these, these spies and he commissions them to go and to check out the promised land. We're going to pick it up in verse 17 because those verses in between end up just giving the list of their names. And if you can pronounce their names, you should be up here preaching because they, some of them are a little difficult. So verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said to them, go up into the mountain of Negeb and go into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds and, and whether the land is rich or poor or whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some fruit out of the land. Now, the time of the season was during the first ripe grapes. 
Now, every year, Charlotte and I and, her, um, and our family end up waiting for her folks to drive out from Saskatchewan to check out the grape harvest. My father-in-law loves his children, his daughter and his son-in-law. Uh, that's maybe debatable at times, and he loves his grandchildren. But every year, they plan some trips where they drive out from Saskatchewan in June, late June, to get cherries, because they have to take you know, 100 pounds of cherries home to share with family and friends. And they have to come out in September for the grape harvest and they love going to this grape patch um, that we have here in, in Kelowna where you just get some, some wonderfully tasty table grapes and they'll take home over 100 pounds of table gra grapes. And so Charlotte and I went on Monday to spy out the grape patch just to see if they were open and, and it, how the grape harvest was this year. And I'm telling you, the grape harvest looks great. And if you need directions there, you can find out from us after the service. Now, we went there and, I mean, it was pretty amazing that we got this, I mean, here's just one of the clusters of grapes that, that we ended up being able to get. And these are tasty. There's no seeds in them. And they have pink grapes and green grapes and these nice purple grapes and, and just so delicious that, that these are. And so we were able to go and, and we phoned them and said, yeah, you better come. So they're coming this week so that they can uh, be part of the grape harvest and take a whole bunch home to Saskatchewan. Let's keep reading here in, in, in chapter, in, in verse 23. And it says, And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between the two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. Now, can you imagine? I mean, this here was one of the, the bigger clusters of grapes that, that we were able to, to find there. And, and I wasn't necessarily thinking of the servant. I just went into our box of grapes yesterday and said, okay, I'm going to find a nice. So this is a pretty nice, healthy cluster of grapes. Can you imagine just what we read there in the Word of God? That they found a cluster of grapes that was so large that they had to put a stick through it and, and get two men to carry it on either side. Well, as I break them, I hope that didn't happen uh, to them. And so now there are some wonderful grapes all over here. And we'll just move them off and someone else can step on them later on. So here we have this cluster of grapes. But can you imagine that, that it would take two men to carry on a stick this cluster back to the people. Just to show them how amazing this promised land was going to be for them. It's actually interesting to note. If you go and you do an internet search on tourism ministry of Israel. Take a look. Here's what you'll find. They'll actually use, they'll take this story and they use it as a logo to promote Israel and tourism there. And so, so, so this isn't just some far-fetched story. Story. It, they're talking about this incredible land. And so, so here they are, the spies have gone, and now they're coming back with a cluster of grapes and pomegranates and figs to show the people, just look at this land. So verse 25, let's continue on. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to the congregation and the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to this land which you sent to us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negreb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land and that they of the land that they had spied out, saying, 
The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, and, and, and come, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them to be grasshoppers. Let's turn it over to chapter 14. Then all the congregation said, raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or, or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is it that the Lord is bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to just to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and let's go back to Egypt. What a bunch of wimps, hey? Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us through into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. And not only do and, and, and do do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. So here we see 10 spies, and you may know that song from your younger years. Uh, 12 spies went to spy on Canaan. 10 were bad, 2 were good. What did they see when they spied on Canaan? 10 were bad and 2 were good. Maybe I'm mixing that up a little bit. Uh, i got to head back to Sunday school and learn that. Anyways, so we see here these 10 spies have convinced the people that the situation on their own power, their own strength was hopeless. There was no help. There was no way they were going to make it. And so they basically figured, hey, we're done. We're not able to do this. Let's head back to, to Egypt. Let's go back to where we at least could die in the wilderness or go back to Egypt. Caleb, he looked at these giants. He looked at the walls. He looked at the armies. He looked at the land that was flowing with milk and honey. He didn't look at it through his eyes. He looked at it through eyes of faith. And what kind of eyes are we looking at the giants in our lives? Are we looking with our own eyes, of, uh, of our own vision, our own workfulness and, and, and working through things, or are we looking at it through the eyes of faith? And so today I want to give you three brief, three brief lessons and, and, and three brief things that we can learn from these verses here from the life of Caleb about a wholehearted follower. There's so many more than three that we could learn from this, but for the sake of time this morning, we're going to look at these three. And the first thing, a wholehearted follower does not allow the past to control the future. Folks, you need to realize that these... these this isn't just a lesson for Caleb and for certain people. This is a lesson for you. Do not allow the past to control your future. And for so many of us, that can so easily happen. We are in bondage. We are in slavery to the past. And we don't have to allow that to affect our future. As Caleb said, as we see here in Numbers 13, I believe God. 
And he wasn't going to allow things to be, his past to be a hold in his life. What do we know about him? Well, first of all, we see that his, his father's name, and so you can learn about that. His father, his name, he, he, his name was Jephunneh. And we end up seeing in Numbers 32, as you do a little, little sketch of who Caleb was, who his father was, he was the son of a Kenizzite. The Kenizzite is a non-Jewish tribe. It's a non-Jewish country. He, in other words, this meant that Caleb was a Gentile. He was outsider, outside of the circle of God's chosen people. But he had been grafted in together. The Kenizzites had come to God and, and had been brought in to be part of the family of God some years before this or even generations before this. And so now the Kenizzites are numbered as God's chosen people. They're part of God's family, even though they don't have the rich heritage that others may have had. His past, his heritage did not stop him from becoming all that God had wanted him to be. In fact, he rose up to be a leader. He was one that was chosen from his tribe to represent the people, to be one of the spies. He was a man of valor. He was a warrior. He was someone who could be trusted. He didn't allow that he was considered by some or maybe even his own mind to be second rate or not to be a real, true Israelite to affect him. How about the name Caleb? It's interesting to know what his name means. His name means one of the uh, common ways that his, his meanings for his, his name is the word dog. Means dog. At first glance, that might sound rather derogatory and insulting. Yet a dog can also be known for incredibly, incredible faithfulness, incredible deeds, incredible obedience, and loyalty to their master. Let's face it, folks. Don't want to burst your bubble here this morning, but dogs are a lot different than cats. <laughs> Just so you know that. Um, dogs are a lot different than cats. It, it, after years and years of um, pleading, Probably petitioning and lots of prayer, I finally agreed last fall to get a cat. People who know me would agree that this indeed was miraculous. Um, because I have publicly scorned men who have been so weak to ever come across the thought or the idea of having a cat in their house and even admitting to liking their cat. And so I even declare towards you, to you all here this morning, to everyone's surprise, things are going along quite well between me and our cat. A lot better than we all thought. But let's face it, one thing about cats, <laughs> they aren't dogs. And these slides just might reflect um, some of the differences. Let's take a look. Look at the dog, says, the master is home, yay! And the other one says, you're late, slave. You know, and that is very true. Or dog, dogs have owners, cats have staff. You know, again, very, very true. So there's a huge difference, and we could go on, and we could probably swap a few of the, these stories and say, yep, that's true. But a good dog is a faithful dog. It is loyal. Another one that I heard, I just got to think about, that, that dogs can be trained to sniff out drugs, to sniff out cancer uh, in patients, and cats can learn how to go in a litter box. You know, again, just in the, the skill and training of, of cats versus dog. And so a good dog is faithful, is loyal, is ready to take on whatever task that needs to happen. And that's what we see in Caleb, a mighty warrior, a man of valor, a man who is faithful, a man who followed God wholeheartedly and was loyal no matter what, and loyal for the long haul, just not as long as he was being fed and, and well taken care of. And yet I can probably Guarantee at the end of Numbers 13, as we see 
that Caleb is there before the people and he stands up, that no doubt, as the people were scorning him and asking and yelling for his head to be stoned, for him to die along with Moses and and Aaron and, and Joshua, that no doubt a lot of them were reminding him of his past. You Gentile dog, get out of here. You're of no worth. Why should we ever listen to you? You have nothing to say. Look at your name even means dog. So what good? And I'm sure that there were people reminding him of his past. And not only at times maybe it was people reminding him, maybe at times he thought, hey, maybe there's some truth to my past that I'm useless, that I'm a Gentile dog and worthless. Folks, if you're hearing those voices in your head, you need to dismiss that and you need to realize that's a lie for the anim- from the enemy. You know, I would venture to believe in this room that there would be many, many of us that hear on a regular basis these voices from our past. Guilt and shame over past decisions and mistakes or sins that we've committed, wrongs that we have done towards others or towards God. Or maybe it's those hurtful words that others have spoken to you and now it plays like a tape over and over. It's on repeat and it just continues on. You don't count. You don't measure up. You'll never become anything worthwhile. No one could ever, no one will ever love you. You'll never amount to anything. After what you've done, not even God could love you. You're failure. You've messed up. You're ugly. You're unattractive. Spiritual victory is for others, not for you. You hear those kind of things in your head? Maybe it's something like that or maybe it's other things. But we can learn from Caleb that our past does not have to control our future because in Christ, we are new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. And God has a plan. He has a plan for good. Not only did he have a plan for good for Caleb, he has a plan for good for you and for me, no matter the background, no matter what we have gone through, no matter what we have experienced. The second thing we see in Caleb is that as a wholehearted follower, he understands And that we also too, to be a wholehearted follower, we understand that sometimes the majority is wrong. In chapter 14, we see it says all the people were against Caleb, Joshua, Moses, and Aaron. This would even meant if it meant all, if if God's word says all, he means all the people. This even means the people from his own tribe and quite honestly, even his own family would have been against him. And so you think about it, three to four million people, we don't know for sure how many there were, but most figure it would probably be in the three to four million range of, of population of the Israelite nation at that time. Three to four million against four. And yet we have to realize that sometimes the majority can be wrong and is wrong. See, it's one thing to face the evil giants in the land of Canaan that they were heading into, but it was another thing to face the giants of those who should be for you and should be with you and should be along with you and helping and, 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 and being a part of what God is doing and what God is wanting to do. And this is a test that Caleb faced and it's going to be a test that we will face over and over and over again in our lives. The desire and the plan and the commitment to be faithful to God's word even though the majority may be against us. Even though those who come alongside of us and encourage us to disobey the word of God. We know the world will do that. Culture, there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to do whatever you want to do. But how about when it's other Christians? How many times can Christians, we can get talked out as believers in Christ out of obeying God's word by other Christians at times? 
We do it in work. We do it in business. We do it in relationships. We justify it. Even though God's word says it, we somehow think we're special or we're told, yes, there's an asterisk beside it for you. And we take and we disobey and we go against what God's word has to say. We obey God's word when it's easy, but when it's hard, you're free to disobey it. Is that true? No, it's not. And as soon, so oftentimes, as soon as it starts to cost us something, when it costs us something to be faithful to God's word, oftentimes that's when we start to bail. We are tempted and even at times told by others, even other believers, to give up or to even go against God's word. After all, it might be easier to get forgiveness from God than permission. And God forgives us. And so just go ahead and do it and he'll forgive you. You're right, God is a God of love. He is a God who forgives. But there's always a price to pay. And we see that with the Israelites. Their defiance of the word of God. And for the next 40 years, as you continue on and as we'll see next week, that God does forgive them. God still redeems them. They will one day, those who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, they will still, they will be in heaven. We will see them. We will talk to them there. But they had many painful lessons that they brought upon themselves because they were disobedient to the word of God. They did not obey. They complained. They violated. They went against it. They didn't walk with eyes of faith. And so what do we see Caleb doing in the midst of this? Even though the majority is wrong, he stands up and says, I believe God. I believe God is faithful. Come on, let's go. Let's go, let's go, let's go. But if you desire to do great things for God, you must know there will be opposition. And you must be willing to stand for God even when at times the majority may tell you to do, el to do something else, to go against the word of God. And today more than ever we realize that we very much may be in the minority even at times within the church even in Christian circles, when we stand up and we say, hey, this is wrong for us to be doing this. Let's follow the word of God. There's times that people will, will, will text me or talk to me or ask me about a certain book by a certain author and they just say, hey, just want to know your thoughts on this, if you know anything about this author. I mean, the title looks great. And, you know, and, 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 but, you know, do you think it, it's good or, or, or where, where is it at? And this just happened this week. I, I had that happen a number of times. And, and one of the individuals sent me a, a, a picture of a book and, and I did a little research and, and this book was fairly new and so there's not a lot of reviews yet or anything on it, but we know the author and and here about five years ago this author had written another book and and the reviews that that are done on it by uh, bible teachers or theologians end up saying hey man this guy is taking god's word way out of context even though he's a pastor of a large church even though he's you know in this book is endorsed by many you know good other pastors and and people who have big names in christian circles and then I ended up saying to this guy, hey, here's, here's a few links you can read about the author. I don't know about this book, but uh, it seems that he has some kind of questionable uh, writing and, and, and thoughts here that, that aren't, you know, accurate. And, and uh, so you should be careful. And, and at the bottom of the book, it said, New York Times bestselling author. And sometimes, again, it hit me this week that sometimes the majority is wrong. And even though New York Times says, hey, this is a great author, there's going to be a great book, read it, whatever, they might be wrong. And that's why we have to take and we examine things with the word of God. We examine our lives and our activities with the word of God. We, we examine our business practices, not by what this Christian is doing, what this person is doing, with what the word of God says we are to do. 
And that is the way we are to live our lives. And when we do that, God blesses, God blesses, God blesses. When we don't, there's, there's all, there may be short-term blessing. We short-term get away with it, but there's always a price to pay. And we would see that God would punish the unbelieving, complaining, not ready and willing to follow in obedience to God's word. Everyone who was 20 years and older would perish in the wilderness, except for Caleb and for Joshua, but we'll get to that next week. And folks, here's, here's a hard truth that we need to face, that sometimes, though in following God, in choosing the path of obedience, in being faithful to the word of God, sometimes the circumstances won't change. And I want to just be honest with you on that. Sometimes it won't change. It won't change immediately or right away or possibly even ever. The outcome that we have feared ends up happening. The loved one we've been praying for dies. The pain continues. The spouse leaves. One remains single. A relationship won't reconcile no matter how hard we've tried. Or our finances don't improve. Or the promotion doesn't come. The plans don't work out. What do we do at those points? We look at it for the life of Caleb. He waited 40 years. He waited 40 years for God to finally deliver on his promises. But here's the thing that whether God delivers here in this lifetime or he does not, when we embrace the word of God and we are staying faithful to that and we walk in faith holding and clinging to these promises, there is strength, there is contentment, and there is peace that leads to triumph in this life and ultimately in the life to come. We have in Hebrews the incredible chapter of faith, the, the hall of fame of faithful men and women who serve God and, and were rewarded accordingly. And, and, and it just takes us through biblical history of these faithful men and women. But then it also talks about those who didn't receive what the object or the end of their faith. It didn't end up well. They ended up being beheaded, being tortured. They ended up dying. But you can believe that great is their reward in heaven. And that's what God's word declares, that he is faithful and he rewards. One thing I need to, is really important though, as we continue on here, that I clarify and help us to understand the promised land. Just, just so you understand this biblically, the promised land in this context here. And what we see is not a picture of people entering heaven, okay? This isn't heaven. Those that perished in the wilderness, as I've already said, but I want to make this clear, they, we will meet them one day in heaven. However, it does mean that they did not live in the land of victory. They did not receive the promises that God had given to them because of their complaining and their disobedience. And you see, for us today, the promised land for us is a picture for us in, in God's word of people entering into the land of victory that is promised in the word of God. And sadly, so oftentimes many Christians, we're in Christ, we've been saved, we've been delivered out of slavery in Egypt, and we're, we're new creations, we're in new Christ, but we're living in the wilderness. We're wandering in the wilderness because we are not being faithful, we're not being obedient to the, to the word of God, we are not living with with eyes of faith and with hearts of faith that are ready to conquer new mountains and new territories that God has for us and we become comfortable with wilderness living when God promises so much more and God has a plan and a purpose that is great and the promised land represents to us spiritual joy and victory and strength that is the promise for every believer that God desires to give and I must remind you that God what he has done for us is great and what he has done ultimately through Jesus Christ, he has removed the greatest obstacle we will ever face. That deliverance from Egypt, that deliverance from slavery, 
freedom from sin, freedom from the penalty of sin. And that sin causes that separation between us and God. And sin left unchecked will lead us towards destruction in this life and in eternity to come. And our only solution is Jesus Christ, to trust in what he has done. And by faith, believing that he has forgiven us when he died on the cross for our sins. And so that involves turning away from our sin, turning away from our agenda, repenting and turning away from sin mentally, emotionally, even physically. And receiving the gift of faith, the gift of eternal life that he has given. And what happens is the penalty has been removed. We get Christ's righteousness and he takes our unrighteousness. And it was dealt with on the cross and we become one of his children. And that is the first step of faith. If you've never taken that, that's the starting point. To be delivered from slavery, to be delivered from, from sin, to have your sins forgiven and to have your eternal destiny secured in heaven. But from there, God wants us to walk into the promised land. And the word of God in the Old Testament and New Testament is filled with all kinds of promises for us as his children. Promises that at times look pretty hard or pretty impossible. We see promise after promise in the word of God. And sometimes we might say, no way, that's not for me. But God promises spiritual victory. He promises so much in our life. And yet we take this through faith, through the eyes of faith. These promises are like the cities. That word, it would be in Canaan that they would one day face 40 years later. And as they go in faith, trusting God, they would see the walls come crumbling down. Not in their power, not in their strength, but in the power of God. And all of this, they were walking and growing. And that's what we do. We're walking and growing in our faith and our confidence in the word of God. And as we read the word of God, as we read the word of God... On a daily basis, even as we do that, we pour over it, we spy out the land and we see, for example, as we did in our prayer time this morning, encourage you this week to read Ephesians 1 and 2 and you will read those chapters filled with incredible promises of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. The full extent of his promises we see in the word of God. In verse 3, it talks about how we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heaven because of Christ. It talks about how we've been united with Christ. We are loved. We are chosen. We are adopted. We are freed from the penalty of sin so that the guilt and the shame from our past is done. We are forgiven. And you might say, but it keeps coming back. Well, that is a fortified city that by faith in the word of God and at times with the body of Christ and others walking with us and praying with us, we'll see that city come down. Those walls come down. And then we're able to enjoy the freedom and the life that he offers as that city, those walls have been torn down. What cities need to be conquered in our lives? Areas of fear, areas of guilt. Oh, we can be forgiven. We're redeemed. Our sins have been purchased, but God wants us to live in victory. And they're just not like nice little promises of Bible people or for people sitting in the room here. They're promises for you. They're promises for me to walk in. And so I wonder, what are the giants in your life? What are the fortified cities that you're facing? What does God's word have to say about it? We take it and we examine God's word and you need to know that for whatever giant we are facing, no matter what it is in our past, no matter what it is that's coming in our future, there is hope, there is help, there is hope, there is help in Jesus through his word, by his Holy Spirit. And through the body of Christ to have brothers and sisters stand with us, walk with us, challenge us and encourage us as we continue on and see those walls come, tr come trumbling down. And through faithfulness and obedience in this way, never perfectly, but progressively we see the victory that comes. You see, the Christian life is a walk of faith. It's about a long obedience in the same direction. We see that in Caleb. He was wholehearted. 
who didn't allow the past to control his future, understood that sometimes the majority is wrong, and he stood up in the midst of the crowd and said, I believe God's word, and we're going to follow what God says to us. And we're going to hold to the promises of faith that victory is available for you and for me today and in the days ahead as we take and start in this march of faith forward. You know, four years ago this very weekend, a number of us were in Oakville, Ontario. We weren't meeting as a church yet at that time. And we were in Oakville for a commissioning service and a training weekend with some of the leaders here at, uh, from, from Kelowna. And there was a commissioning service for Charlotte and for us and for the team, as well as a lot of training of the equipment. And, and after those services were over, they had a Saturday night and two Sunday morning services. They sent us out. We jumped on an airplane and Tom and Pam jumped in a truck and they headed out west with one very full and very heavy trailer in a rented three-quarter ton truck. The rest of us, we were home in three to four hours and Tom and Pam were home four or five days later. And you see, four years ago, well, actually it was more like five and a half years ago, a group of people started to meet together, praying together, and building a core group of people. We stated at that time and prayed towards this end that God would send people who would come along and join us in this journey of what we believe God calling us to do in planting a church here in Kelowna. And that time we stated very upfront as people would come to our vision nights and come to our core group training that we're looking for people who are committed, compelled, contagious, and courageous. And if you're not those, and if you're not willing to be one of those people, hey, you can join us maybe later on. But, but even with that, you're going to hear this message that we are looking for people committed, compelled, contagious, courageous. And knowing for us all, as we began that journey, it was going to be a huge step of faith and a walk of faith. And over the last four years, we have seen God's faithfulness in some incredible ways. And I, I can honestly say, and Charlotte would agree with me very much, that, that these last four years have been some of the hardest and most stretching in the ministry work that we've been a part of, and the same for many of you. It can take a toll physically and emotionally and spiritually in various ways. And I know others have felt that as well. And yet it has also been, in so many ways, the most rewarding as we watch God literally raise up and build up a church. Nothing from nothing to see what God is doing, and we give it him the glory and the praise for that. You know, just even this past, past week, I was able to sit in on a Harvest Kids meeting that they were having, just doing some teaching and some training and just learning policy and procedures just so that we are compliant with the standards that are around us because we want to be good citizens. We want to obey the laws of the land and, and, and have a safe and a great environment for our kids to be able to learn the word of God and to feel loved and safe and protected. And just sitting around the, that table and just saw the crew of people that were there ever saying, God, would you send us more? Because we need more people to come alongside and serve in this ministry. But just to see the love, the passion, the laughter, the joy um, around those tables as they ate ice cream and as they got trained up on things and coming up with the game plan for the fall. And I say, God, you're faithful. God, you're so faithful. See that faithfulness at 7 a.m. as the setup crew sets up and the worship band gathers together. We see that in the greeters and the ushers. Those who lead us in worship week after week, we so appreciate them and their commitment. That's a lot of work. 
Not just, just, not just on Sundays, but practice and, and preparation that they do themselves. And those who teach and lead and serve and, and commit in, in committees and other planning and, and different things that are going on. So many behind the scene things that are going on. And we get to watch God work. We get to see lives get changed. We get to see lost people get saved. And this is what God calls us to do. And four years later, nothing has changed in that we are still looking for more people to come along who are committed and compelled and contagious, contagious in a good way, just sharing what God has been doing in their life and, and sharing what God is doing here and courageous because it's going to take steps of faith. And some of you haven't even filled out that orange sheet yet. Right now would be a great time to do it and say, hey, I'm committing. This is the church where God has called us to be a part of or we believe that he is and I want to just start taking some of those first steps to getting committed. As you've heard today from our ministry leaders, there's help that's needed in every area because the load for some is weekly and it's hard and we need to give some a break. The Holy Spirit has gifted each person here who's a believer in Christ. He's gifted you with certain gifts and abilities to be used for his kingdom. And as his children, we're called to participate, just not to sit and watch and, and see things happen. And I know there's schedules and I know there's certain seasons in life where it's hard to commit and, and different things, but those seasons can oftentimes turn into many seasons or years. And, and that's, that's just not great. And so I encourage you, start taking those steps of faith and say, hey, I'm going to commit. I'm going to commit to serving the Lord. Whether it's here at Harvest Kelowna, the church you're, you're a part of uh, normally, or whether it's a ministry or different things, be a part of kingdom work. That's the most important thing in this world. The most important thing we can be a part of. And so I encourage, there are many that need to step up and step in by faith and be obedient. The excuses need to stop and need to commit in those ways. And ask the band to come up as we close in worship and as we bow our heads even right now, I'm going to lead us in a prayer, but I just want to ask you a few questions. Folks, I just want to, as we closed here this morning, I'm just giving a call towards some action. I want you to know the greatest action that we need to take is action towards God. God desires our hearts, that we give ourselves fully and completely to him. And if you've never done that today, I'd encourage you to do that. In the way that I talked about earlier, we'd love to talk to you afterwards. Or maybe you're half-hearted in your commitment to the Lord right now. You've allowed many other things to, to creep into your life and it's time to say, hey, I need a Caleb spirit within me. Someone who is ready and willing to follow, follow God wholeheartedly. That means commitment. Commitment to the word. Commitment to spending time in prayer and seeking God. Commitment in serving God and taking a stand for God. It's not going to be easy, but as we do it by faith, it's possible. What are the giants that need to be defeated in your life today? Those voices of defeat that are snuffing out the victory and the walls aren't coming down because you're just believing the lies. What needs to be defeated today? Give that to God. Commit it to him. Those lies, those excuses, the stuff from the past can be forgiven and you can be set free. Allow Jesus to take that today. Give it to him. Stand up and declare in your own heart even as we worship together that I'm going to find my strength. I'm going to find everything in Jesus Christ. I'm going to turn to Jesus. When we commit ourselves to him in that way and we live by faith, watch the walls fall. You watch what God does in your life, in your family, in your marriage, in your finances, in your work, in your testimony to others. Oh, may we have that Caleb spirit within us, we pray. God, I pray we would believe it now and that you would receive our hearts. Receive 
our commitments and receive our forgiveness for our lack of commitments and our waywardness. May we all be wholehearted followers who not only have a strong start, but next week would we see we would be faithful to the end. The rewards out of this world, literally and figuratively. So we praise and we thank you. And God, would we stand and rejoice for all that you have done, for where the freedom and the victory is found. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.